good morning, everyone. So uh, we're at that time in the service where, once again, we will be discussing um, what it is we believe as Christians, right? Some of the basic and simple truths that make up who we are. Um, and I know a lot of you are not here in person this week. Um, so if you want one of these table talks but weren't able to grab it in person, please email me. Uh, it's it's not a problem for me to take uh, that document and just send it to you real quick. So if you're wanting one of those and weren't able to grab that person, um, please email me this week and I'll get to get it to you uh, as soon as I see your email. So, um, But this week, uh, we are going to once again talk about what we believe. And last week, we started talking about what is God like. And I said last week that if you talked about all the attributes, God, about who he is, you could talk for eternity. And in fact, I think part of eternity is getting to know God more and more and more, right? Uh, this, this beautiful picture of going deeper and deeper with that relationship. Nevertheless, there are some things that we know about God, and there are a couple of important attributes that I want us to know, because this is, um, this is who God is. It is the utmost importance. And if we are followers of And so this week, I wanted to talk about one attribute in particular. So um, if we answer that question, what is God like? This is another simple way to answer that question. So what is God like? Well, God has and always will exist. Being the creator of all things, he has no creator himself. Being the sustainer of all things, God has no need for anything outside of himself, for life or for happiness. God alone, out of all there is in existence, is uncreated, and God alone has no Now that's a lot to take in, but it's incredibly important. And this is why we often speak of God, for instance, when we talk about, well, why did God create human beings? And one of the answers commonly given is because he desired or he needed something to show his love to, right? If God is love, he needed an object for his love. But we already discussed God is transparent. His love was expressed perfectly in and of himself. And when we say God has no need, that means us. God has no need of us. Now, first, that sounds mean, right? When other human beings say, I don't need you, it's, it's an insult. Um, it's an insult because it's a lie. All human beings have need of other human beings. But God has no need. And when we really get this, this is freeing because then why did God create us? Why did God go through so much effort to pursue us and bring us back into a relationship with him after we sin? If it's not because he needs us. And the answer is because he wants us. And that is such a freeing, beautiful truth shows us in the scripture. And it transforms everything about the way we live as Christians. Now, when we follow him and we do things that are faithful to him, like when we tell other people about Jesus, we're not doing it because God needs us to share the gospel with this other person. We're doing it because God invited us in his work as a father would invite his son to help him along with his job. Not because he needs his son. Uh, in fact, as humans, it's it becomes a little harder sometimes if your, your kids are right. 
He doesn't do it because he needs us. He does it because he wants us to be into a relationship with us. So whatever we do as Christians, it's not out of some need of God. It's out of the opportunity, the kindness that God gives us to enter in to a relationship. I hope you guys take that in the table talk and get to discuss it as a group a bit more in your next week as you explore more about what our God is. With that, I'm invite up Pastor Joe. I love what Josh had just shared there about we get to share in our Father's work. Uh, not because he needs us. In fact, in many ways, we're probably a hindrance uh, to God's work. In the same way that when, you're, when your child is helping you, sometimes they're encumbering you, right? Uh, when they're little. But uh, nevertheless, he chooses to use us. He chooses us because he loves us. I want to pray uh, as we open up our time together. So if you would uh, pray with me. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we sang earlier, we are restored and made right because you got a hold of our life. That uh, because you reached down and saved us, that our life has changed. Uh, Father, we're so grateful so grateful for your grace we're so grateful and amazed by your mercy we're so thankful that you would choose to use us choose us despite our sin and bring us into your family father we pray as we open your word this morning that you might help us to see your grace uh, not only in these these ancient stories that we're going to look at, but also in our own lives. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the things that I have noticed, both in uh, this year of COVID and at many times in the past, is that when times are hard, it is tempting to doubt that God's grace rests on us. Our temptation is to think something along these lines. Well, I know I'm supposed to believe that God is really with me and He has really given me His grace, but if that's true, then why are my circumstances so bad? I mean, shouldn't God's blessing on my life be more, well, visible? Shouldn't I be able to tell that it's there? If he's really there to help me, because it, if, it, if he's there right now, in my circumstances right now, it seems like if he's there, he's there as my opponent. Now, I won't ask for a show of hands on this, but has anyone besides me ever felt like that? Or maybe even prayed like that? Asking God exactly where your hand of blessing is at this moment. Right? If you read the Psalms, you know that the psalmist says that on the regular, right? Uh, in fact, 75% of the Psalms, I don't know if you know this, but 75% of the Psalms are, uh, Psalms are lament Psalms. 
They are, if you'll forgive me, uh, they are the blues. Right? You know, and they, they, they contain lines, you know, that sound a lot like B.B. King and nobody loves me but my mother. Right? And she could be jiving too. That kind of a, that kind of a lyric is what you is what you can get out of the Psalms because it's tough sometimes in tough circumstances to wonder where God's blessing is. And the people of Israel in Nehemiah's day found themselves in that kind of situation, one in which they were tempted to wonder where God's blessing went. The temple and Jerusalem were destroyed in 586 B.C. Seventy years later, the Persians defeated the Babylonians and allowed the exiled Jewish people to return, but only a handful went back. The task of rebuilding the temple proved pretty daunting, and it took 15 years to, in, to complete it with serious, ongoing encouragement from God's prophets. Fast forward another 65 years to the seventh year of the emperor Artaxerxes when a second wave of exiles returned to the land and began to rebuild the walls. That effort came to a screeching halt thanks to a letter from their provincial governors who sent Artaxerxes this letter and said, hey, these people, these Jews that you have over here in the province beyond the river are rebuilding the walls, and you know if they get the walls rebuilt, they're going to be a rebellious province against you. And so Artaxerxes sent them back a letter and told them, here's my royal edict, you're to stop building those walls. And that left the exiles who were there in Jerusalem and in Judah isolated and unprotected and discouraged and wondering whether or not God would ever fully restore them. But 13 years later, God begins to work through a man named Nehemiah, who is cupbearer to Emperor Artaxerxes. And it's a great story. I want to look at the next chapter with you here this morning. Uh, it's in chapter 2 of the book of Nehemiah. If you've got your Bible open, if you would stand with me as I read God's word to us. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city... The place of my father's graves lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time, and I said to the king, 
If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. And then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days, and I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. And then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall and turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, for I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me, and they said, Let us rise up and build. And so they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word. We pray that you might speak to us by your Holy Spirit in it and through it. And Father, may our hearts respond. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, there's a lot we can learn from these these uh, 20 verses or so. Uh, there is amazing things you can learn in this chapter about what it means to be a good leader and a good subordinate from Nehemiah's example. Um, studying, the, studying the book of Nehemiah to learn how to lead well is a study worth doing, but I don't think that that's the primary reason why God included this book in our Bibles. I think the chapter here is primarily given to teach us how to trust God's good hand in spite of our circumstances. Uh, in fact, that idea that God's hand is with his people and that we should trust God in our circumstances, uh, even though they are tough, is repeated twice in this chapter. Just 20 verses, about once every 10 verses, you get a reminder that God's good hand is with his people. And it's, it's the idea, it's a vivid metaphor. It's the idea that God, uh, that God doesn't really have hands. God is a spirit, amen? 
uh, but it's a it's a uh, personification, uh, a way of speaking about God as if He were a human, and that His hand of blessing, His hand of grace, is there to help us through the circumstances we face and to accomplish His good purposes. And we see three examples in this chapter of how God's good hand works to encourage us to trust Him in our circumstances too. So I want to show you these three things. The first example that we see of God's good hand is how God's good hand overcomes governmental resistance. God's good hand overcomes governmental resistance. Remember, Nehemiah was cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. This is the 20th year of uh, Artaxerxes' reign. It's likely that Nehemiah has been the cupbearer for this entire time. He was one of Artaxerxes' closest advisors, uh, the closest thing probably to a friend that a man in that kind of position of power has. And it's very possible, therefore, that Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king 13 years earlier when Artaxerxes had made his royal edict forbidding the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah is motivated by the, by, um, by the Spirit of God to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild but he's not sure how to do this because you're about to tell the most powerful man on the planet at that time, hey, by the way, you screwed up earlier and you need to let me go back and rebuild the walls of this city. Now, what is Artaxerxes going to think when he says that? Let me see if I've got this right. You want me to send you, my most trusted personal advisor, to rebuild the walls of a city which when it existed was rebellious against other empires? Let me see if I got this right. Can I repeat that for you? Why would you want to do that? Is it because you would really like to lead a rebellion against him? Why does the guy have a cupbearer after all? It's because everyone in his empire wants him dead. And so he has to have somebody to taste his food and make sure he's not being poisoned to death, right? It was a common fate if you were the king because somebody is always trying to climb the greasy pole and knock you off. And Nehemiah has got to go before the king. On top of that, servants of the Persian king were forbidden to be sad in his presence. You weren't allowed to be Debbie Downer around the Persian emperor. That was not considered a protocol. And Nehemiah has been fasting and praying. We're told it's in the, the month of Nisan, which is about four months after uh, the month of Chislev, which was mentioned in chapter 1, he, when he hears the news and starts to pray and fast, four months have gone by. Where Nehemiah has been planning and fasting and praying and seeking the Lord. And one day, when the king is in his cups, and Nehemiah is bringing him some more wine, his heart is happy. He's taking the opportune moment, in other words, right? Um, 
The king is, uh, has had some wine. He's maybe not thinking entirely clearly, and Nehemiah comes to him with a request. But he comes looking sad before the king. And the king asks him about it. Why are your, is your face sad, seeing as you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Do you see your Bible there, what it says next? Then I was very much afraid. Again, you're not supposed to be sad in the presence of this man. And of course, his greatest fear is that his, his, his citizens, those who are part of his kingdom, are leading a rebellion against him. And here Nehemiah is going to make his request. And so the first thing Nehemiah does is he's, he proclaims his loyalty to the king. Let the king live forever. And then he makes... In his response, he doesn't make it a policy question, but a personal issue. You'll notice he doesn't mention what the name of the city is. He wants to go and rebuild. Not once in the whole chapter does the word Jerusalem come up until Nehemiah is there. He says, well, why shouldn't I be sad because... The, the city of my father's graves lies in ruins. It's a matter of history, personal history. It's about family. He's trying to appeal to him on that basis. The city, the place of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates are burned with fire. And then when the king asks what he's requesting, you see what he does? What are you requesting? Next thing, what's he do? I prayed. How do you pray in that moment? The king is, you're standing before the king. He might be mad at you. He might take your head off. And he's very afraid and he prays. I bet it's one of those little arrow to heaven prayers. Jesus, help. Kind of a prayer, right? Lord, help me say the right thing to the king. And then he answers. He gives a detailed plan for what that will include. He tells him the projected timeline, what materials and resources and approvals and support he will need, and even about the place where he will live. So what's he been spending the last four months doing? Planning, planning, preparing, and praying, waiting for the moment. And Artaxerxes says yes to all of it without even really a question. How did that happen? Well, Nehemiah tells us in verse 8, the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. In other words, Nehemiah says, look, this could not have happened. This should not have happened. But God's grace, his good hand, 
of power and mercy was on me and it overcame governmental resistance to what I wanted to do. God's good hand is sufficient to overcome governmental resistance. Amen? Next we see God's good hand is also sufficient to overcome overwhelming obstacles. Look with me at verses 9 through 16. These are amazing verses that describe an incredible challenge. When Nehemiah shows up in Jerusalem, he's accompanied by an armed escort. There are cavalry that are with him. Uh, he is a high official, remember, so he's not coming you know, uh, on, the, on the sly, in secret. Nobody knows he's arrived. There's a giant armed entourage that arrives with him. And when he gets there, he gets there in a fraught situation because as the king's cupbearer, he outranks everyone else in the province. And he has authority from Artaxerxes himself to carry out the task. And have you all ever watched any cop shows on TV? Right? Like one of the tropes on cop shows is that, you know, you've got like the, uh, you know, the local PD, you know, maybe it's NYPD or it's the local sheriff or whatever. And then there's a kidnapping and then the feds show up, right? The super police show up, right? The FBI shows up or whoever, right? Um, and, and when they show up, what happens? Well, all of a sudden there's this bumping that happens over whose jurisdiction this is going to be. And who's really in charge here? And every, you know, it's like, uh, it's like two dogs with a fire hydrant, right? All of a sudden, uh, everybody's like feeling displaced. And I, 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 don't, I don't, I'm the governor around here. Who are you, Johnny? Come lately? You've never even been to Jerusalem. This is your first trip. And and this is the kind of opposition that Nehemiah experienced. Uh, Sanballat and Tobiah are probably government officials. Possibly they are the same governors who sent the letter 13 years previous that got the rebuilding of the wall shut down on the grounds that it might lead to rebellion in the province. Because later on, you'll notice that's the question they ask Nehemiah. What are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Didn't he issue an edict 13 years ago saying we couldn't rebuild the walls? What are you doing? Are you leading the rebellion? So he's got obstacles there. Um, and on top of that, the task before him is immense. He goes out in secret at night, him and a few of the armed men who are with him, to ride and check out the state of the walls. He goes out on the west side of the city, on the valley gate, and then he turns south to inspect. And he gets all the way down to the southern tip at the Dung Gate, which is down by the Hinnom Valley. The Hinnom Valley is where they took the garbage out and they set it on fire, which is why uh, Jesus used that place uh, as an image for hell later on. Uh, as, as he's speaking about hell, he said he's essentially that hell is like the garbage dump for those who are rebellious against God at the end. It's where the refuse is set on fire for eternity, where the worm does not die and the fire never goes out. Because in the Hinnom Valley, it didn't. Fire was never, was never out. 
because there was always more garbage being added to it. And the maggot never ceased to exist because there's always fresh garbage. And he said, Jesus said, it's like that. Well, this is the dung gate. It's down in this valley and they're just throwing. You ever been to like an old farm where people throw junk down the ravine? Right? This is that kind of an idea. And he goes out the west side of the city. He eventually comes to the point of a place where the rubble and the number of stones thrown down from this wall into the valley below makes it impossible for his horse to even ride through. And so he rides further down into the valley and he either loops around the east side and then comes back in the same gate he went out of or he just simply circles back the way he came. Uh, but the task before him is huge. If you can imagine this, the city walls at this time um, are likely around two miles in circumference, possibly as big as two and a half miles. Now, I know how big two and a half miles is because I have run on the Indianapolis 500 racetrack. And it is a long way around. Two, and a half, two to two and a half miles in a big circle and then the walls are probably, uh, when they originally stood, probably 20 feet high. And the stones are, in many cases, several feet thick. And so you've got this massive task ahead of you. And, the, and it's sitting on top of two hills. And when they pulled the walls down, they threw them down the valley. So you're going to have to haul them back up the hill and then set them on a wall that as the, the higher you go, the harder this becomes. It's an overwhelming obstacle. And how are you going to rebuild something that massive with much of it thrown down a great distance and use a discouraged and oppressed populace that failed to do so earlier? They haven't rebuilt the walls in 140 years. No one alive has ever seen these walls standing. How are you going to do it? The answer is, you're not. Unless you know what Nehemiah knows, that God's good hand is on you. And he believes and he knows that God's good hand of grace and power is sufficient to overcome even these overwhelming obstacles, even the opposition of the uh, government officials who are already there, even the, uh, the, the just e enormous size of the walls and the, the task that is here and the amount of labor and work that that will require. This is more than laying bricks up the side of your house. This is enormous amounts of labor requiring a huge effort. But Nehemiah knows that God's good hand is on him and on this task. And so he believes that it can overcome overwhelming obstacles. And it can also overcome spiritual enemies to accomplish his good purposes. You know, in verses 17 to 20, what you see in this last paragraph 
is Nehemiah gathering up all of the leaders, all of the priests, the noblemen, the governors, uh, all the people who will be necessary to do the work of rebuilding. And he reminds them not only of the necessity of the task before them. Hey, do you see how much trouble we're in? And of course they do. But also of the fact that God's good hand is with them. He points to the fact that, look, God has already overcome the biggest obstacle that we had, which was the opposition of our emperor. And God has given me everything I have asked for for free from that very emperor who was earlier opposed to what we're doing. Imagine that. Not only was the emperor opposed before, but now he's financing the project. Think about that. He not only got, God not only got this guy to change his mind, he got him to fund it. How does that happen? Because God's good hand was with them. And as a result of Nehemiah's testimony and his encouragement of the people, they're all enthusiastic about rebuilding. Let's do it. Let's rebuild. Well, I say all, not all. There are some opponents. Remember Sanballat and Tobiah? Well, now they're joined by another man, Geshem the Arab. These men who, are again, are likely people whose Nehemiah's arrival had displaced out of their positions of authority, they are determined to not let that stand and to displace Nehemiah and to deceitfully make it appear as if he is trying to reestablish Jerusalem as a rebellious place with himself as king. And I don't think their opposition is simply about uh, their power. That is certainly part of it. I think part of it is religious in nature. It mentions that, that Sanballat, they could calls him the Horonite. Uh, there is a city in Israel that is uh, called Beth Horon. And it's possible he was from there, and that's why they called him that. But Sanballat is not a Jewish name. You know what nationality it is? Babylonian. Do the Babylonians worship Yahweh, the God of Israel? No. How about the Ammonites? Tobiah is an Ammonite. No. They have another god that they worship, pagan god, a god who requires child sacrifice. And then there's this other fellow that we meet, Geshem the Arab. He's from Arabia. He's probably a descendant of either the Ishmaelites or the Midianites. He is not a follower of Yahweh either. And so it's not just that these guys were worried about political power. They don't want this place reestablished for spiritual reasons either. <coughs> Excuse me. These are pagan God-worshipping spiritual enemies of Israel. These are ancient enemies of Israel. And they would like to thwart God's good purpose. But notice Nehemiah's response. He says, the God of heaven 
In other words, not the one you worship, but the one that we do. Will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or claim or in Jerusalem. In other words, God's good hand of grace and power will enable us to accomplish his good purpose, and you will miss out on the blessings that come from that worship, not because you're opposed to the project that we are doing, but because you are opposed to God. It wasn't that foreigners couldn't enjoy the blessings of being part of the people of Israel. Amen? If you, if you doubt me on that, remember Rahab? She was Canaanite. Remember Ruth, the Moabitess? Remember the queen of Sheba who came and uh, listened to Solomon and came and went home a worshiper of the true God? It's not that foreigners couldn't be part of the blessings of Israel, but you had to be willing to come under the nation of Israel and worship her God. And these people are opposed to God. And so Nehemiah says what is true about them, that you have no right or share or claim. You have no inheritance here. This is not yours to enjoy. And the reason is, is that you're a spiritual enemy. You can't put yourself in opposition to God on the one hand and enjoy His blessings. Well, now, where does this story leave us here in 2021? Uh, we aren't called to rebuild something physical like a wall, uh, but it is true that we have much to rebuild here as a church in our community. Much to rebuild. Uh, we have fellowship and relationships that are badly in need of rebuilding. In fact, Going forward here this spring and summer uh, as we're able to, one of the things that the elders and I would like to do is to see us form some groups that are not necessarily Bible study oriented, but are just fellowship oriented to get people connecting with one another again. I don't know if you've noticed, but one of the things that we've lost after church, everybody just leaves. People don't hang out and talk anymore. Even though the coffee shop's open, people don't come in early to visit with one another as we do. We've lost that. And by the way, is that a bad thing? Yes. We, we don't have as many folks coming to Sunday school anymore or in person to church. And is... Is the purpose of those things important? Yes, we need to be taught God's Word, but equally important are the relationships that need to be rebuilt. And so we're going to be focused on that. We've lost much of our outreach. Not that we're not doing any, but much of the outreach of the ministry of the church has had to go away for various reasons. We're going to have to rebuild it. Many of us have been that have become discouraged, just like the people of Israel were. Some have even fallen into sin in various ways, and some have fallen very hard and very far, just like the stones that were cast down from the wall. 
And there is a great need in our church right now for repentance and encouragement and restoration and regaining what we've lost so that we can fully function in the community again as God intends. And more than that, remember this, that God's good hand is on us. God's good hand is here for abundant blessing in this season that we are in right now. There are new people who have joined us since we had the COVID mess. People who have come into our body and become part of the fellowship here. We have more money coming in than we are spending due to your sacrificial giving. We have more coming in than we even budgeted to spend. We have people who are returning to Christ and to relationship with each other and who are building one another up. We have God's good hand of grace and mercy and power resting on us as the body of Christ here. And men and women, it is sufficient to accomplish the task that is before us. I believe with all my heart, that God's good hand of grace and mercy and power is sufficient to overcome any governmental resistance that may yet be ahead of us. That it is sufficient to overcome any obstacles that are before us, even if those obstacles appear to be overwhelming. God's good hand is on us. And that we can rely on God's grace and that He will show up for us in the same way that He showed up for Israel and with Nehemiah. And there is no question in my mind that God's grace and power is sufficient to overcome spiritual opposition too. Because greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. Amen? And greater is... God's grace to His people than any spiritual opposition that we encounter. And we will probably, in fact, I believe we are encountering some. I believe the devil's working overtime this year. He's gotten double shifts going, right? And everybody is pulling extra hours in the demonic realm because of the number of people that are disconnected and isolated from God and from one another. And so then they're pouring themselves into, a, into addictions of various types and kinds. And they're isolated and lonely, scattered. And some of them, isolated, lonely, and scattered, are part of our church. But some of them are not. And God has called us both to encourage and to build up one another as well as to go get those people. To go out to, as the parable says, the highways and the hedges and to build them up and bring them in to the kingdom of God. And to help them find the life that is really life. And there is no question that God's grace will help us as we move forward. You know how I know? Because it's already promised. Jesus said, remember the last thing he said? Gospel of Matthew, 
Behold, I am with you every day. Your Bible may read always. But text says, every single day, He will be with us. So is He with us today? Yes. Is He going to be with us tomorrow? Yes. How do we know? Because He promised He would be. And Jesus always keeps His word. And if God is for us, who can be against us? I believe that this year we're going to see some amazing things together as we rebuild the ministry that God has given to us, the Chillicothe Bible Church. As we begin to regather our fellowship, as we begin to regather people from outside our fellowship and make them part of the family. think God is going to do some amazing stuff. And I can't wait to see it. I'm excited for it. And I hope that you will be too. As we begin to pray and prepare for the future, I pray that you would pray and prepare, maybe even fast, along with us. That as we move into this new year and new season, that we would see God's good hand of grace on us and rejoice in it and rejoice in the process of rebuilding. So let's pray and then let's sing some more. God, our Heavenly Father, we are convinced that your good hand of grace rests on us. We know that it does because you promised that it would. And you always, always, always keep your word. Father, not one single small word of yours has ever fallen to the ground. And so, Father, we claim your promise that your grace and your mercy will be with us and that your grace is sufficient for us in our weakness. Father, I pray that you might encourage every discouraged person. That every person who has wandered into sin would be drawn back and remember that the throne of grace has abundant mercy and help and that if we confess our sin he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness Father I pray that those who are isolated would reach out and would respond when others reach out. That they might um, overcome their isolation and scattering. Might hear the voice of the shepherd and come near to him and to his people. And Father, we pray that, that we would remember your grace today and tomorrow and the next day next week, the next month, the next year. Help us to remember your grace, that your good hand and grace and power is sufficient to overcome every form of resistance, every obstacle that lies before us as we trust you. And Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.